Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and every week the team and I will be bringing you an exciting mix of discussion, interviews and stories. This week we discuss Alex Salmon, the spending review and possible tax hikes, talk about the way suicide is reported with NS blogger Willard Foxen and novelist Rebecca Waite, hear about NS Assistant Editor Daniel Trilling's recent reporting trip to Greece, listen to Sophie Elmhurst and pop critic Kate Mossman talk about Rihanna. Meanwhile, Alex Hearn and I will talk about the crowdfunding platform Kickstarter. Our cover story this week is an interview with Alex Salmond, leader of the Scottish National Party. I'm joined by Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, the editor of The Staggers, to talk a little bit about it. Um, Raph, first of all, in this interview, Alex Salmond talks about a jobs guarantee for young people. He doesn't actually mention how he would cost that, and I wonder what your thoughts were about how feasible it is as a policy. Well, the, the first thing to say about that is it's also a Labour policy. It's, I mean, Salmon says he would sort of write it into a Scottish constitution, uh, Labour don't. But the essential point is that you mobilise the, the power of government and the state to do does what it says on tin, guarantee people a job. Um, uh, the question that people always sort of throw back at that and the one that Labour have already found on the doorstep, people saying is, well, how? I don't believe it. Uh, uh, how can you just make these jobs? And the answer appears to be, George, you might know more about this than me, you essentially recruit business into this process and you get enterprises, companies to sign up to the scheme. Government finds a mechanism for subsidising job creation directly with employers. Employers sign up to it because they want apprentices and they want to be seen to be helpful. Um, and Labour say they've had a good response to this. I'm sure Salmond wouldn't have announced it if he hadn't found an, in, at least enough potential uptake to make it sound feasible. But voters are very sceptical about it, it has to be said. And George, is this part of a, a large attempt? And we've seen a lot of appeals to pensioners, you know, Cameron protecting all the pension benefits. Is there now an acknowledgement that actually young people are being slightly stiffed by a lot of policies and there need to be specific policies aimed at them? I think so. youth unemployment is still 20, 21%. Um, has, has, you know, it's, it's not much below a million across the UK. Obviously, Labour have opened up that debate about pension benefits with the winter fuel allowance, which only saves 100 million, but symbolically was, was very important. And they've said now that they'd include pension spending in their welfare cap. And so I also think there's an acknowledgement that you're not going to be able to make you know, all the savings you want through cuts. And one of the conspicuous areas of the budget that hasn't been touched is pension benefits. So you wrote a blog saying essentially this, that whoever wins the next election is going to not, is not going to be able to achieve deficit reduction entirely through cuts. So yeah. 
What do you think are the likely areas that we'll see tax rises? Well, the Tories, um, before the last election, said we have no plans to raise VAT. First thing they did, put VAT up to 20%. VAT is always an obvious candidate to uh, to increase because it's very easy to collect. Um, Labour will... And presumably think, people don't blame the government for the fact that their shampoo or their you know, bread or whatever is, is slightly more expensive. Absolutely, yes. In, income tax is a much more sort of politically sensitive tax. Labour, I'm sure, will... I don't think you can put VAT on bread, can you? No, there's a long, complicated... I'm sure okay, we'll have letters, but... Yeah. <laughs> there'll be the Jaffa cake question all over again. But you know yeah. what I mean, on household old yeah. goods. Yeah. Uh, Labour, I'm sure, will reinstate the 50p rate. They'll introduce some kind of mansion tax. But the problem is, uh, although those taxes are politically useful, they don't raise much money because they don't affect many people. So the big question for for Labour and the Tories is, look, the IFS, the Resolution Foundation, have said, actually, if you don't introduce any more welfare cuts or tax rises, uh, departmental spending is going to have to be cut 50% faster than it's being cut at the moment. And, of course, the longer you cut, the harder the cuts get to make. And so how are you going to fill the hole? Yeah, the interesting, if you talk to sort of what former chancellors have said many times is, look, there's only two ways to really raise big, fat sums of money, um, and that's VAT and the basic rate of income tax. VAT has already gone up. Essentially, ever since the sort of early 90s, putting a, even a penny on the basic rate of income tax is, is a massive taboo issue. But actually, it raises a lot of money. Um, and the interesting thing is, at what point does someone dare to say, look, if you want to all be in it together, put a penny on the basic rate. But it's, we're so far away from even having that conversation. And you've written in your column this week, Raf, about um, departmental budgets and the fact that the, you know, in 2010 they were offering up you know, sacrificial lambs of huge amounts of money, and now every Osborne is having to claw every penny away from them. Yeah, the, the, the contrast is, is remarkable. I think essentially a lot of particularly conservative incoming ministers in 2010 thought it would be easier than this. I mean, first of all, there's an ideological presumption that you sort of have a short, sharp shock of cuts and then the economy is sort of released from the dead hand of the state and enterprise and investment do the rest and growth comes back quite quickly. We know that that, that simply didn't happen uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and But also yeah, there was a, a sort of an ideological conviction that it was a sort of a morally right thing to do to, to rein in spending. And then once you've been in your department for a while and you've felt a bit of political heat from, for example, there being fewer police officers or not being able to fight wars in the case of the Ministry of Defence, uh, you get a little bit bolshier about your budget. Um, and so the point I was making in the column, or one of the points is that increasingly sort of Everyone in politics is realising that this isn't just a couple of years of pain. This is a good decade or more of reimagining what government can do, what the state can do. And as all politicians, left and right, they get elected to pull levers in a state system. And if that's going to be a rusty, broken, shrunken state system, it's slightly less appealing as a prospect. And they, the, the idea that actually watching your rivals have a go at it and mess it up starts to acquire a certain kind of lustre. And to bring it back around to the Salmon interview, the other thing he says is that you know the bedroom tax could be the new poll tax. He thinks that it's a vastly unfair, unpopular tax. Where are Labour on that? Well, this is very interesting. One of the things that particularly Labour MPs on the left have said to me is that they were really getting a bit of momentum behind their bedroom tax campaign and people understood it, the language was working, the Tories looked ridiculous when they tried to call it a spare room subsidy, it hadn't been thought through, it hadn't been costed properly, it was a disaster and they were starting, their fist was starting to connect with Tory jaw on this. And then when asked the question, would you repeal it? 
and having to give the answer, well, it's a bit early to say we're not sure about that, you know, it's going to be a very tight fiscal settlement in 2015, then all the life went out of it. Alex Summers clearly understood this and he thought, you know, you went halfway, you didn't have the guts, tell you what, we'll have that piece of political pie, thank you very much, gobble, 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 and he's not afraid of a bit of pie, famously. And on that note, uh, I'll say thank you to George M. Rav. This week, uh, the youth magazine Vice attracted an enormous amount of controversy for a fashion spread based around the idea of female writers who had committed suicide. It graphically demonstrated the author's methods of committing suicide. I'm joined by the novelist Rebecca Waite, author of View on the Way Down, and our blogger and Telegraph's bloggers, Willard Foxton, um, to talk about the issue. So, first of all, Rebecca, you wrote about this piece for the New Statesman website. What was your reaction on seeing the pictures? Um, I think disbelief at first, and then anger, because it is so dangerous, and I'm not sure everyone appreciates that. Certainly, Vice don't seem to have appreciated that. I mean, I hope, in a way, that they didn't understand that when they did the pictures. Um, Mainly... Um, shock at how they glamorised the act of suicide. Um, you know, very beautiful women, beautiful clothes, um, looking very kind of serene as they went to meet their ends, um, which can have a huge impact on how suicide is viewed as this kind of dramatic or poetic gesture. Whereas actually, I mean, in context, it's often the end of a very harrowing struggle with depression, um, has huge ramifications for the family. Um, the individual is not going to be remembered as this kind of person who waded beautifully into a river they're just going to be dead and gone and one of the things that the samaritans guidelines say is that if you depict suicide in creatively in television for example if you show a painkiller overdose you don't show somebody who then bounds back and is mm, fine again you show the absolutely. harrowing problem of liver failure yeah um, and willard you've written about about suicide your father committed suicide and how do you feel, where are we with how it's represented in, in the media? Well, talking about the vice brand, I certainly didn't want to go out and buy my girlfriend a Fendi cardigan immediately afterwards. I couldn't believe that the fashion brands agreed to do that shoot. Um, but I suppose the way I think it is in the media is I wrote this, a piece about responsible reporting for suicide. And I've got this awful feeling that every three weeks it's going to be repeated back. I'm going to have to retweet it over and over and over again because... It is consistently reported badly, and not just by the local press, but by national newspapers, by um, by TV news outlets. It's it's one of those topics that over and over and over again is reported incredibly badly. And what what are the kind of things that you're talking about there? Um, well, specifically uh, things like they will they will ascribe a cause, a specific cause to suicide. So they'll take the last mm. thing, or they'll take the justification that was put in a suicide note and say that is the be all and end all. That is the why of what happened. And it's very tempting to do that because it creates a very nice narrative. You know, so and so's benefits were cut, and then they killed themselves. Although in actual fact, all the evidence we have about suicide is things are much more complicated than that. And it, as you said, mm. it tends to be the end of a process, a very long process of depression and things breaking down and people cutting off links to support groups family friends or the rest of it and then suicide's the final act. well that's something i wanted to ask you about because we have seen as you say a rash of stories about this government's policies are driving people to the edge and that that do you think that though that is irresponsible reporting i think it's quite difficult i think uh, the first i clocked the first time i saw a story saying this government will cause suicide. And it was three weeks after the general election. And there has been a consistent narrative through the press that 
this government's policies will cause suicides. And there's been a consistent message when there have been suicides that have been linked to benefit cuts that this is not only that this is the government's fault, but this is a in some ways a powerful act that this is making people sit up and take notice. Mm. And I think that sends an incredibly irresponsible message. Firstly, because I don't think Downing Street is listening. And secondly, because even if they were listening, I just I, I think it's incredibly irresponsible to incentivise that and say that this is somehow brave and noble and it's people taking a stand and also that it is the rational response to having your benefits cut, that is, it is to kill yourself. And that, I feel, is a message that has gone far and wide through the media. Mm. Well, we know that, with, for example, with self-immolations, that you know, because the first one attracted such enormous media coverage, it became the thing, you know, a, a way, it became a sort of almost a trend of that was the way that people showed their disgust with a, with a policy. Um, Rebecca, I'm interested because you tackled this issue in your novel and I understand that you, you worked with the Samaritans on that. Um, well, my, my mum's a Samaritan um, and so I've sort of been, I've had that in the background for many years um, and the novel's also based on my own experience of depression as a teenager so I felt um, coming at it from both those angles I had quite a good understanding of someone's sensitivities involved in the complexities um, of suicide um, and I wanted, I wanted I was determined really to portray the suicide in the novel as something that is very grim, very harrowing, very bleak and not remotely glamorous and not a kind of an act of defiance, not something that achieves anything um, or has an, an effect that continues except to obviously cause huge trauma to the family. Um, and I think something that was true for me as a teenager when I was depressed and perhaps thinking um, about suicide um, and might be true of other people is that you don't always fully comprehend that death is forever and it sounds a strange thing to say but often the way suicide is reported you see um you know you hear that the young person's killed themselves and then there's um all the messages reported from their friends the outpouring of grief the pictures of people weeping at the funeral and I think that can seem quite appealing in some ways and you don't fully realize that once you've you kill yourself you're actually gone you're dead you don't see any that's of that. a teenage sense of you'll miss me you'll realize what yeah, I want it, it doesn't that. achieve anything and so I think that's the danger in suicide reporting that the person gets kind of eulogized afterwards and that's something that Samaritans counsel people not to do obviously in reporting um, and well how do you think that I mean what are practical what are things that you would never like to see again and what are practical steps that media could take to, to report suicide better well it's a lot of a lot of it is about the language that's used so um i think for example the samaritans don't like thing terms like um committing suicide i know and i find that very hard to get i was just thinking myself as i was saying it for whether i was using that term because yeah that's... they say that it's because it's no longer a crime they don't want to Mm. Do that. And they, that they don't like the phrase successful suicide attempt because that implies that that's, you know, that's a kind of a good outcome from that. Um, yeah, no, I agree. A lot of it's about the language used, but when you actually think about the power that certain words have, and we're talking about the way this is glamorised and the way this is the way that this is seen and the way that vulnerable people will read this, because that's what this is all about. It's not about you or I reading that. It's about someone who is at their lowest ebb reading that article and going, well, well, that makes sense. I'm in the same position as that person. This is a good way out. This person's been eulogised. And it's, it's that kind of... The thing I really hate when I read suicide reporting is convenient narrative outcomes. Mm. This happened, and then the direct result of this one thing happening was the suicide. So I think people should try to avoid, you know, try and uh, try to avoid saying things like, this is why the suicide happened. People should always make it a clear point that it is complicated, it is the end of a process of depression. And people should really think about the impact their writing might have on other people. I think it's so easy when people are on deadline and you've just got, you've just been told, it's, you know, it's 2am, you're in a newsroom, and you've just been told, cover this suicide in Grimsby. And it's very easy to 
Um, the other thing about it is, is, is when suicide gets into the press, because most suicides aren't reported, the vast bulk just aren't reported because they're not news. And I think when suicide gets into the press, we were talking about the way people are memorialised, but people, when they see suicide in the press, a lot of very vulnerable people think, well, if I die, it will, it will be the only way I can have a voice. This is the only way I can propel myself and my problems into the news. And so much of, of, of uh, I mean, people say things like, oh, suicide is a cry for help. And in some ways, it, a suicide, you know, trying to kill yourself is a cry for help. It's saying, I desperately need someone to listen to me and I think that when you do run big stories about suicide it can be very very responsible I remember talking to a group of academics who were saying who I would you know I was there to meet them and talk about ways in which um, scientists could better engage with the media and they started talking to me about suicide reporting and until I had done it I hadn't realized just how irresponsible the coverage was because they just kept up bringing example after example after example after example of ways in which coverage in practically every national newspaper in the past year have been incredibly irresponsible and it's just a constant problem. I think that's the thing to stress because I mean I got I wrote about the Vice thing for, for the Guardian and I got quite a lot of, of flat from it from people from Vice who said well we do lots of great stuff as well and I thought it was true that, but I think that's probably not emphasised enough the fact that the Guardian this year ran the suicide note of the nurse who hanged herself after the prank mm. call about um, the Duchess of Cambridge the Telegraph put Paris uh, Jackson on the front page when she, you know, she was 15 and she um, attempted suicide so it's not it is. A, it's not a kind of. It's not a perpetuated by evil tabloids or evil mm. right wing press. It's everybody still hasn't got to grips with the subject, right? We just still are trying to work out what the way to deal with it is. I think it's one of these things where slowly uh, the um, the problem with it is is reporting on suicide tends to be the kind of thing that goes to the junior reporter on the late shift, and once you've done it badly once, you get the feedback and you realise. But then it's quite rare that you'll do the same thing again. And I think it's a mistake that a lot of, especially young journalists make, and young journalists on local papers make, because they, they roll it all together into, it's just another story, and they don't think about the consequences of it. Thank you very much, Willard and Rebecca. I'm joined by assistant editor Daniel Trilling, who also edits the Austerity in Europe blog on the New Statesman website, to talk about the piece he's written about the Greek um, town of Yerisos in the magazine. So, yeah, first of all, tell us about when did you go and what did you see? OK, so I last visited Greece at the end of April, and I travelled up to northern Greece to this uh, in village, in fact, called Yerisos, which is on the Halkidiki Peninsula, which is a very beautiful, quite remote bit of northern Greece. And um, there have been growing protests there for the last few years over plans to expand gold mining in the area. So that region has always had small scale mining, but um, the current plans are to um, sell off a huge tract of land to a Canadian mining conglomerate, which will then turn a whole mountainside essentially into an open cast gold mine. And the level of protest is incredible. So it's a town of, what, 4,000 people, and it started off with 3,000 people taking to the streets. Yeah, so what they've done, the campaigners there have, have been able to build this into a huge movement involving thousands of people. They've drawn in people from the surrounding villages. They've also had solidarity protests in, for example, Thessaloniki, which is Greece's second largest city. I think they had 15,000 people out on the streets there quite recently. And why is this... Why is this important? Because, what, you know, I mean, for those of people who are not familiar with uh, the kind of the politics of Greece and what's happened with austerity policies there, I mean, what does this tell us? Well, it's important because it, it really um, underlines how austerity and how the gov various governments' response to the financial crisis has, has been to choose a form of economic shock therapy, which in effect 
is using the crisis as an, as an excuse to push forward even more extreme versions of the neoliberal free market policies that they had wanted to push before the crisis. So this town was told basically you have to have a gold mine, kind of Greece demands it, it's the only way to get the economy back on its feet. Yes, exactly. And I mean, the irony is that under, under the terms of the agreement, I don't think the Greek state is set to make any money out of royalties from the minerals extracted. And yet the government is saying we have to go ahead with this because the economy is in such a state, it will create jobs and the rest of it. And I think it struck a chord with many Greeks across the whole country who see this as symbolic of the way that they feel they've been treated in many other ways. And um, I, I mean, what I tried to do in the piece in the magazine is tie this into the wave of protests that have happened in the last week in Greece about the closure of the national broadcast at ERT. So yet again, this was another move justified by the government that, you know, we... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We want to cut jobs at the broadcaster to meet the targets set by our creditors uh, for cutting civil service jobs. Um, but again, the government has done this in a very heavy-handed way where they ordered the broadcaster to essentially be switched off almost immediately. So, so there was this footage of people just sort of going in while they are in the middle of delivering the news show, right, and just kind of switching off monitors. Well, exactly. And, um, I mean, you know, Greece is a country that's got a, quite a turbulent recent history. You know, it was, a, it was a military dictatorship at the end of the 60s until the mid-70s. And so whenever the government does something uh, as... Um, direct as that it, it raises fears people get very worried and they get angry and uh, you can see how reactions develop and turn into protest movements and editing the austerity in europe blog where are the which are the countries that you're finding most interesting stories are coming out of at the moment because i know we've been talking about hungary for example yeah well i mean i think the two trends at the moment you can see in europe are um in terms of responses to the crisis and responses to the, the sort of austerity policies are that either countries are sort of engaged in this slow or not so slow drift rightwards pushed by the rise of kind of populist and far right parties sort of on, on the political fringes hungary is a very good example of that where um not only does it have a quite now quite popular far-right movement that are the third party in parliament. This but is Jobbik, right? This is Jobbik. Uh, but the government itself, the run by the, a party called Fidesz, which used to be uh, seen as centre-right, even Blairite, in fact, has, has been slowly removing constitutional checks and balances and increasing its own control on the country. So that's that's one side of the reaction. And then, and then otherwise, I think we've seen increasing uh, amounts of street protests. Um, I think... There was a point at the end of last week where there were large street protests happening all at once in Bulgaria, Bosnia, Greece, and then Turkey as well. So that's a whole chunk of southeastern Europe where people are protesting against uh, various wrongs that they see committed by their governments and that, that in most cases have a quite clear economic uh, edge of grievance to them. Thank you very much, Daniel. We'll leave it there. I'm Sophie Elmhurst, the features editor of the New Statesman, and with me here is Kate Mossman, our pop critic, who not long ago went all the way to Twickenham Stadium to see Rihanna live in concert. Was it your first time? 
Seen no, her? I'd seen her in the middle of the uh, farcical tour where she was on the jumbo jet going around the world. Seven countries in seven days with a load of journalists. And that was in November. And that set up an idea that Rihanna was was one way, and then the Twickenham Rihanna was very different. Very so much. yeah, tell, I mean, because the, the tour obviously was this kind of absurd worldwide corporate sponsored. Yeah, and, and she thing. sort of disappeared in it. She was there were people that we all seemed to know somebody who was on the plane, <laughs> and the fact was that nobody saw her. There was no there was no FaceTime with Rihanna, which a lot of the journalists were, were promised, and. It became this this thing where the journalists created their own story and it almost looked like a, having a laugh at the expense of the traditional music media because at one point um, an Australian um, writer just took all his clothes off and ran up and down the aisle <laughs> of the plane for, to give people something to write about and they did, they, everyone tweeted about it and you know people were set up to write these 2,000 word pieces when they got back but of course we all knew what was going on in real time because that's the way technology yes. works. Um, and in the middle of it she was this kind of... Uh, faceless character really behind these big kind of fly sunglasses and um, spent a lot of time in her tent backstage uh, smoking everyone knows that she's a big stoner she's admitted that she posts it she instagrams herself smoking weed um, <laughs> and um, yeah there was a feeling that you know would she actually make it on stage tonight uh, every night she was sometimes three hours late sometimes four um, and it just looked like as much as it was set up to be a return to the great Led Zeppelin days of the rock and roll tour. It was a disaster for everybody, apart yeah. from probably for River Island and, and HTC, who were her sponsors. Yeah. yeah. So, so what? Um, how was Twickenham Rihanna different? What, what had changed? Well, there was, for a start, I didn't see any great evidence of sponsorship. There were no mobile phones being lobbed out into the audience <laughs> um, at frequent intervals. Um, she was really engaged. Um, she was very, very much in control. She smiled an awful lot and she actually chattered. And well, I saw Justin Bieber in uh, his sort of slightly disastrous tour in March and I was struck by how unable he was to improvise on stage and mm. just think, what mindset is someone in? I know he's young, but come on. To not be able to string a sentence together apart from, have you guys heard my new album? <laughs> Thinking, you're doing this every night. You must be able to say something about London or about the O2. And um, Rihanna was very much like that when she was on her um, jumbo jet tour. And then at Twickenham, she was... Uh, she was talking about the fact that her whole family was in the audience. She said, um, my mum's here, my dad's here, my cousins, they're all here from, from Barbados. Um, if you want to make my mum cry, uh, count to three and then scream Rihanna. And she got everyone to scream her name. And it was a weirdly kind of thrilling moment because, okay, it's massively egotistical and also it's very <laughs> personal somehow. Because yeah. you know that she, she sort of told Elle magazine that she's terrified of her mum, that her mum had a go at her for posting naked pictures online recently. Um, so she is sort of, she does have a sort of fearsome mother figure. And um, yeah. I thought it was quite nice that she, that she kind of involved the family in the thing. I mean, a lot of reviews of that gig commented on the fact that she was wearing hardly any clothes most of the time. And they even said things like, um, what must her family think of the fact she's wearing knickers on the stage? <laughs> You're kind of missing the point here, because <laughs> I'm sure they've seen her pants before. <laughs> and yeah, in your, in your excellent piece, you, you compare her to, well, there's Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Bieber, as you've just mentioned. There are the there is there is this sort of elite superclass, isn't there mm. now, of touring pop star where the kind of huge stadium global tour is now the sort of yeah. staple of their lives with the solo act at the centre. With yeah. the solo act at the centre, but that essentially they have become these sorts of commodities to a certain extent, or these sort of mega brands of yes. their own. Yeah, and I wonder how. I mean. There are cases, and you know, I've seen Beyonce live, and you, you, you sense even amidst 
all the fireworks that you're there's a, there's a sort of quite an electrifying human presence mm. there. Mm. But it's, with Rihanna, it does always seem to be a bit more touch and it go. Is, and it is, but it's funny how it does come through because no matter what you put on top of the person, no matter how many trucks you've got backstage, no matter how many sort of flamethrowers and dancers, you the personality of the pop star does come out. You know, yeah. Lady Gaga has set herself up as this really kitsch kind of public servant. She's really funny. <laughs> She's like... She'll breathe into her microphone deliberately and it's really uncomfortable and it's like <gasps> like that. She'll go, um, I am just here for you. Everything I do, I do for you kind of thing. And it's all a bit funny and everyone knows she's having a laugh. And Beyonce does that, but she does it slightly more seriously. It's yeah. kind of um, a, a real workout on stage. Yeah. And Rihanna still manages somehow to look like a very laid back uh, Barbadian girl who's sort of swaggering around on stage, singing every other line. She's got this guide vocalist on stage. Which I've, I wrote about in the piece, I found that really interesting. I mean, yeah. it's quite normal to mime these days. Um, but she doesn't even pretend to be singing. And it's actually, in a weird kind of um, postmodern way, it's quite impressive because it's saying, this is all about the show. This is all, you know, this is all about what you come to see me. Yes, this is the human being, Rihanna, on stage. I'm not going to have to sing all the time, am I, guys? You know, I can do it. And so I think that she does have a certain power in that laid backness that, um, yeah, the same way that Gaga and Beyonce have yeah. it in their energy. Um, and I guess inevitably we can't talk about Rihanna without talking about Chris Brown, yeah, um, which has also been uh, of her own volition a big part of her sort of narrative in recent years. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was the obvious domestic abuse incident, um, but she, as you write about, has to some extent used it in her work mm, anyway mm. I mean I mean it happened in 2009 and, and the album that came out that year it happened in about March and she had a record out six months later that had um, uh, lyrics which were directly I can't remember the example but directly connected to um, I think it was like a lyric something like I know what you did to me was wrong this is cold case love all this kind of thing yeah. and then she brought out a record in November last year she's done one a year since her career began when she was 16 and it had a duet with him called Nobody's Business, which was very aggressive, kind of, you know, this is our love, it's nobody else's news. Which is ironic, because obviously she was making it everybody else's news. Um, yeah, exactly. And encouraging everyone to buy it. Yes. <laughs> so it was very uncomfortable, um, very cynical. There was a sense that her, she doesn't write her own song. There was a great piece in the New Yorker a few mm. years ago about, yeah, the, 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 the team that creates these R&B hits and how they how they work with the writer to to get some ideas and then they put the music around them, and um, they obviously knew that they could sell they could sell that image. And at the same time, it makes me sad that she would ever I don't know. At the time, I thought there's this idea that she should be a role model um, for young people and that she was failing in that duty and going back to the the, the boyfriend. I found that very odd, and I still do because. Famous people show all sorts of weird, screwed up, addictive, depressing behaviour all the time. Mm. And it's never held up as a bad example to fans. Mm. Drug addictions aren't, overdoses aren't, mm. um, eating disorders. It's always seen as a sad byproduct of your situation, of the fact you live in a very weird world and mm. you've, you know, you're very isolated. And in a way, going back to an abusive relationship or a once abusive relationship might have been a similar kind of addictive behaviour, mm. who knows? And it seemed odd that at the time that everyone was like, she should know better than this. Yeah. She's, she's got to show an example to these 14-year-old girls that she's never met. Um, and I did... It's weird. There's a, a headline on... I think it's Grazia this week. Um, has a picture of her, and the headline is, I'm one of love's addicts. And I don't know but whether she's put this idea out, but that she's kind of got to go into this rehab for love or something. Yeah. Um, but you do suspect 
or wonder if it's all part of it is all part of quite the thing, a clever yeah. brand yes um, yeah so well thank you very fine. much kate um on the mystery of rihanna um we'll leave it there <laughs> thank you I'm joined by our senior young person's internet correspondent, Alex Hearn, to talk about Kickstarter. I've got a promotion. I'm senior Yeah, now. you're senior. Um, first of all, who or what is Kickstarter? Kickstarter is a crowdfunding website, the, the biggest crowdfunding website in the world. Crowdfunding is this idea of funding usually creative works by asking a lot of people to chip together small amounts of money before the work is made to fund the creation of it. So the way it happens is that you're asked to pledge a certain amount of money, you get rewards for depending on how much you do it, and you only have to pay if everyone else also chips in. Right? Yeah, and that was Kickstarter's big innovation. The idea, obviously, of uh, using a lot of small donations has existed for quite a long time. Kickstarter's thing is coming along and letting people uh, ask for a certain amount of money and then promise that you will not be charged unless everyone gives the full amount, which is really good because if you want to make an album, uh, and it costs £8,000 to rent the studio, and you're given £4,000, you're in a terrible situation because you owe people something, they've given you money, but you don't actually have enough to make what you promised. Kickstarter solved that with a uh, relatively ingenious use of Amazon's payment system. Uh, it's a web 3.0, 4.0. It's a, an internet success. 17.9. Um, so it all sounds brilliant. What's mm-hmm. the problem? The thing is that Kickstarter has grown... Kickstarter the site has grown in ways that Kickstarter the company might not be entirely comfortable with and don't seem to be very comfortable with. Um, A few of the biggest successes early on were for things which were done in the site's um, technology section, which is supposed to be a place for people to gain money to sort of uh, release canny new innovations. Actually, it was people basically getting seed capital to start up Silicon Valley companies. So one of the biggest things in the early days of it uh, was something called the Pebble Watch, which is a Bluetooth watch with an e-ink display that hooks up to your iPhone and shows incoming calls and what's playing, all this. They got millions of dollars, uh, but they got it basically by asking people for money to help them set up their company. They then delivered the watch late. They did a lot of it through selling bundles to shops that were going to sell. So you could buy 100 watches in one pack. And Kickstarter doesn't really seem very comfortable with being in that position. Um, If you look at their actions since the the Pebble Watch took off, they've made it a lot harder for companies to sell based on an idea only. Mm. Instead, they want you to sit down and actually say, this is what I need the money for, this is what I'm going to make, and the money will fund the creation of that. It will not fund me starting a business. So the other big criticism, as I understand it, is people who could have gotten the money by other ways... So Zach Braff yeah. um, raising for a film, and um, Sozia, I believe it's pronounced Mamet, who uh, wanted to make an album with her sister just you know yeah. for kicks, and she's already a very successful actress, and her dad is a very successful playwright. That's, I mean, this this is an, an interesting thing about the company because what what you don't hear is the failures. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um, or Melissa explains it all for the slightly older crowd. Or, yeah. uh, was it wasn't it Clarissa? Yes, Clarissa. Clarissa. Oh, so what? That's how Melissa old I am. playing Clarissa. Yeah. Um, she tried to raise money to do a film and she bombed she completely failed it big famous people can do very well amanda palmer is another example the veronica mars movie is yet another example but they still have to be people with very engaged fan bases 
Um, Will Wheaton could basically Will Wheaton could build clear a up. giant yacht and sail it. So this yeah. is the guy who was Wesley Crusher in Star Trek, who was a kind of nerd icon. Exactly. I mean, Helen, you could probably raise a fair amount if you came up with a half-decent idea. Because that's what 30,000 Twitter followers and an engaged audience Be does. Be right back, building my <laughs> you know, Palace of Solitude out of diamonds and crystals, yeah. But the thing is, it... it there's, there's the worry that it will choke out small people on Kickstarter. That if Kickstarter becomes a place for Zach Braff to raise $3.5 million to make a sequel to a film that had a general release in cinemas worldwide, that it will be a lot harder for the person. It wasn't a great film, though, was it? This is Garden State, wasn't yeah. it? Which is him and basically Natalie Portman wearing a little helmet right I liked it, on but a... I was a literal child when it came out. <laughs> this is so horrifying, <laughs> conversations with you. Um, and actually, one of the things that we've seen is that they're having the problem that so many platform companies that are also sort of media companies are having. So there's this been this guy from Reddit who has wanted to kickstart for a pickup artist manual, which is basically yeah. tells you how to pick up women, in which he says things like, don't take no for an answer, uh, you know, be mm-hmm. dominant, don't ask for permission first, women like a man who's strong and in charge. Pull and- her hair if she's like, yeah, just loads of really horrible advice. But the problem is that this advice was given on a snippet, what he described in the Kickstarter, of snippets of the books have been posted on Reddit. Uh, and, you know, you could go and read little extracts from the chapters. But it was posted on Reddit. And people only sort of made the connection, people outside of the Reddit, uh, quote-unquote, seduction community, which is horrible, <laughs> um, only made the connection with a few hours to go. And Kickstarter since reviewed So it's this. funded? It's funded. It got $16,000 um, to, to publish this book. And Kickstarter since reviewed it and gone, look, he didn't say this on our site. He he linked to a thing that linked to it, but we can't police everything in that way. And it's a problem for them. They're damned either way because either they they take on the role of not only researching what people actually tell them, but starting to like Google the names of submitters and find what they've done elsewhere, or they're going to have other things like this. You know, it's perfectly possible to imagine Tommy Robinson going on and kickstarting the EDL and going on and kickstarting a a book on how to be a great EDL member where the Kickstarter description is perfectly, you know, blase. Be patriotic, have a few England flags. But then you you click through and you find that he's obviously planning to put horrible crap in it. Um, And I think, isn't this something that we see over and over again with internet companies? We've got to a stage now where we have, I think you mentioned Facebook and the the problems that it's had with these sort of pro-rape pages, Hmm. um, Tumblr, Twitter, even Google results were talking about them, you know, the kind of campaign to make Google block porn or right. block child porn. Who know, you know, where that line rides and it depends on different newspapers. Um, but are we not going to have? Are these companies not going to have to decide at some point whether or not they are platforms or whether or not they are publishers and they are responsible in the same way that uh, you know that, that we would be pub- responsible mm. for anything we put in the New Statesman? I think it's even harder than that because some of them have decided their platforms. Kickstarter is is pretty clear that they're they're a shop you know they're not they don't exercise editorial control what they might have to do is try and replicate what you have with uh telephone calls and the post royal mail uh has i can't remember what the actual name of it i think it's sort of um common carrier or something legal exemptions which basically mean that provided they don't open post they cannot be held liable for things which are posted Maybe that, you know, maybe what we need is something, not just a legal recognition, but a cultural recognition, that some of these sites want to be common carriers. And actually Kickstarter, for instance, can be allowed to host anything, provided it doesn't stop anything. But, you know, the, no one is saying that the internet is not free enough. 
This this is this is not. Well, some people on Reddit. I think some people on Reddit are. But it, you know, if if you had to look at whether there was too much horrible shit on the internet or not enough, <laughs> it's pretty clear which which way that's going. Okay, and on that undeniable truth, uh, Alex Hearn, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you, Helen. Today's podcast was presented by me, Jeffrey Lewis, with Jeffrey Bear, Jeffrey Eaton, Jeffrey Foxton, Jeffrey Hearn, Jeffrey Elmhurst, Jeffrey Mossman, Jeffrey Trilling, and Jeffrey Waite. It was produced by Jeffrey Crampton, edited by Jeffrey Morn, and our theme music is taken with Devil with the Devil with the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next week, and you can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.